Hello there, this is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia with a message for all those that are hungry and thirsty for reality, for ultimate meaning and destiny in their lives. Now, I need to make you aware that I have a very bad cold right now. I've got over the hump, but sometimes there's a real bad spell of coughing, although since I've started just now, it seems to have subsided. Anyhow, I will put it in pause if that happens and continue with the message. First of all, this message is briefly an introduction to those that are new from whatever your background is throughout the world. It is an introduction to what this message is about. It is about the very reason for which all things exist and consist. The very purpose for which you were created as an individual. There is a reason for which all things are the way they are. Now, I'm not here to get into that, but I do want to introduce you to my website at ultimatemeaning.com. There, there is a flip book which answers many of these questions and has in links highlighted in red to many YouTube videos that expose from many fields of science and archaeology many things that are very amazing that the vast majority of the public is not aware of, which is very strong, irrefutable evidence. So you can check that out for yourself. And there are videos there that I also have that share who the one true eternal God could only possibly be. There are many people nowadays that have an idolatrous monotheistic perception of God that is contrary to reality, to what reality could only possibly be. And I might just briefly mention these things here for those that are new. If you look up the word truth in various dictionaries, it will define it as that which is basically real or reality. So if you look up the word reality in various dictionaries, it basically would define it as that which is indestructible, immovable, absolute, unchangeable. Well, there's only one quality that is that way, and I will explain in a very integral way about this quality. First, I just want to point this out for those that have been deceived to believe many things that are stated as fact and in fact are complete lies and are exposed as such. For example, on my website that I just referred you to at ultimatemeaning.com. One of the unique thoughts that God gave me many years ago in the 1990s that I've never heard mentioned anywhere else is the following understanding. If you believe that the theory of evolution is true and that things are evolving to higher and higher order through selection and survival of the fittest, then if you apply that theory, first of all, it wouldn't apply just in the physical dimension because 
From particle physics, we know that the third dimension, the physical dimension, is very inferior to the fourth, to the fifth, all the way up to the tenth. Far superior. So if there was evolution, and that were true, things would have evolved, of course, well before there was any such a thing as sexual reproduction, because that's a highly complex system. Something would have evolved, and it would have had to have been one entity, because the chances of this even happening, according to big mainframe computers, is basically zero. You might say almost zero, but I would say it's almost it's the same as saying zero. Because it's just, but let's say something happened. Okay. For example, there is a scientist. What's his name, if I can bring it to mind? Um, probably at this late hour of the night, I cannot bring that scientist to mind. But he has invented the Big Breed Theory, which is far superior to the Big Bang. So he has his theory about how this happened. And I won't go into explaining that because you can find links to that in my flipbook that is at ultimatemeaning.com. Nevertheless, so things evolve to higher and higher. Well, one thing we know from the first law of thermodynamics, it basically reveals that there is no beginning. Matter cannot be uh, destroyed. There's always was something. Okay, well, all these wacky theories about some negative and positive field. Whatever the form of existence was, something was always there, right? Okay. So if you apply this theory of evolution over an infinite past, you should have reached the maximum of evolution in the infinite past. And of course, the second law of thermodynamics, which says that everything left on its own always goes in a direction and disorder to complete chaos would mean that we came to complete chaos in the infinite past. And yet here we are in a highly complex universe, discovered more than ever before to be so, such as the electron microscope, little machinery and cells that is so complex that the top AI technology is a joke. Then they boast about computers taking over and all this stuff. Like it's some big thing and man is somebody when man can't come close to the technology that is in a cell. And I showed that in my last week's message and you can see a video on the things that are in the cells on my site at ultimatemeaning.com. The maximum result of evolution, having no limit of time, would be an ultimate being of the quality that I'm about to describe. But that ultimate being would have been so powerful and had mastery over all the principles and laws of the universe and time and space and chance that it would have swallowed up the need for such a process to exist so that it never would have existed. And order always would have been superior to disorder. So that there always was order with no beginning. Ultimate order which is who the one true eternal God is. And so let me describe a non-idolatrous description of God, of the one true God. The one true eternal God 
is love. The Bible says in 1 John a number of times, God is love, and that's the word agape, which is the highest form of love, which basically means a quality that always chooses the highest lasting good over any lesser choice. It is beyond the love of feeling, which is filio, and the sexual love, which is eros in the Greek. It is a quality that always chooses the highest lasting good over any lesser choice. Obviously, any lesser choice as such would have a measure of corruption in it. This love has such integrity and purity that it will never condone what is contrary to love. In fact, it is the destroyer of what is contrary to love. It is the destroyer of corruption, which is the destroyer of goodness. So the first aspect of love is that for love to be really love, it must be pure. It must have integrity. It cannot condone what is contrary to love. This is the holiness of God's love, if you will, or the defensive aspect of the being of God who is love. That is represented in the negative symbol, which represents an indestructible foundation and the cutting off of all corruption. And what causes electricity to flow is when there is the negative and the positive that are aligned. And so out of the negative symbol is formed the positive symbol by crossing out the negative symbol. In fact, the last letter of the most ancient languages is the symbol of the cross as we know it today. It is the last letter of the Phoenician alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, when they had symbolic letters back 1500 BC, 2000 BC and earlier. Way back in the beginning though, and you know what that last letter meant? It meant a sign or symbol. So much for those that are atheists trying to get rid of crosses. No, the cross didn't originate with Christianity because Christianity really existed before Christ came even, which I could explain in detail. Maybe the word Christianity signifies those that have had the revelation of Jesus Christ, which most did not until after the resurrection. So in that sense, you could say, use a different word, but here's the point. The other aspect of this love is so great that God's love was so ultimate in its perfection that will not tolerate corruption, that God could absorb judgment upon himself on behalf of the creature that would choose to receive his atoning substitutionary sacrifice which happened on the cross through Jesus Christ. Yes, God humbled himself more than you, a mere creature. Yes, God suffered more than you, a mere creature. Oh, you say, how dare you make God like a little creature? God forbid. You have a limited, confined, idolatrous view of God if you think that God is not great enough to communicate with his creation. For example, in Genesis 18, Abraham sees three men standing before his tent door in the heat of the day. Probably they look more majestic than normal humans. He bows before them and says, can I make a really good meal for you? He gets a servant to prepare a really good meal. They eat together and he dresses the main 
leader of those three as Yahweh, which is the most sacred name for God, which basically means the ultimate reality that is separate above and beyond creation, the I am that I am, as he's also described, which is the quality of the being of God's love. Yes, that was Jesus Christ communicating with Abraham back there in Genesis 18. <clears throat> I could talk a long time about this, but I'm just introducing the two aspects of God's love, the negative so-called aspect, which isn't really negative, it is a really positive thing, and the positive aspect, that God has provided a way for us human beings to be able to receive forgiveness through his atoning substitutionary sacrifice on the cross through Jesus Christ. God's love is so great that he could do that. And that quality in the being of God that was a reality in history when Christ died and rose again was always in the being of God from the infinite past, not as a capacity, but as a reality. It was as real before the world was created as as if it had already happened. There has always been that quality in the being of God that has the power to forgive the sins of those who are created as we, as being such as we, which through the physical dimension can potentially through, indirectly rebel against God through the physical dimension instead of directly rebelling against the stream of God's blessing and glory as some of the angels did, which in which case wouldn't receive forgiveness from what I can tell. So, here we see a description of God's being of love. And I cannot go and describe many other things because I want to get into the message. But I thought I'd give you a brief description like that for those that are new. And I have a more in-depth uh, teaching in all of these things I'm talking about here in some of my other messages here on this site and also especially at ultimatemeaning.com. I am here now to talk to those that have truly come to receive the one true God who is love and not reject his provision of love through his perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross through God's one and only Son. And I should mention this also. For many people believe that we believe in three gods and that's not true. For God to be God, for the one true eternal God to be God, to be almighty God, he must be in three personages because he must be able to rule in the three ultimate aspects of existence, which are beyond creation, in creation, beyond creation is the Father, the word Father means originator, in creation is the Son, to experience the creation realm and partake of it, etc., etc., become an atoning sacrifice in the creation realm, the very quality of the 
The Son is the full expression of the perfection of the being of God and the one and only full expression of the perfection of the being of God into this world. And, of course, the third personage is the Holy Spirit, which occupies omnipresence in all, and all dimensions of time and all dimensions that exist, such as the third, the fourth, all the way up to the tenth, or how many other dimensions there may be that we do not know of. You see, you cannot rule in a realm such as the creation realm without being in personage or conscious intelligence in it. You cannot rule as the father beyond creation, seeing the end from the beginning without being in personage and in conscious intelligence beyond the creation realm, nor in omnipresence. So it is three persons, but one God. And if you had to rule in those three ultimate aspects of existence, you would have to be in conscious intelligence in three aspects, which are in personage, as in three, in three aspects. So I'm just sharing with you some information that I think is important to qualify who I am sharing with people about. I could share a lot more here, but I want to get into the message. This message is for those that have come to know the one true eternal God through crying from the depths of their heart unto God and saying something such as this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, really meaning it, and saying, God, forgive me for all my sins. Become the Lord and the Savior of my life, the central treasure of my life. I cry unto you, have mercy on me, to forgive me and to cleanse me and to come fill me with your spirit. And he will, because his body was broken unto death for you, and his blood was shed unto death. And I've written a book titled, Afterlife Incredible Irrefutable, which you can get on the internet, on Amazon, large six by eight paperback, 368 pages. You can also get it, of course, in Kindle, on your phone, or whatever digital device you want to get it on. And it is really better than the bestsellers, although I haven't marketed it <coughs> properly. So there's no star rating, but I'd, if you want to give it a rating, read it. Check it out yourself. It's a really, really good book. Okay. So, these messages are given without preparation. Everything I share here, I don't prepare notes or anything particularly except that I do paste scripture verses and things like that and maybe a brief comment. That's about it. But the Word of God says, in order to explain what I do here, in 1 Peter 4.11 it says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. That's referring to believers. They're always to seek to let God speak through them, to cultivate the gifts of his Spirit so that they are in a state of worship while they're speaking to others, seeking to sense God's word, what God would have them say to that other person. Or when you come in assembly to do 
likewise the same. This is particularly true when you come together to gather around the one true eternal God, Yahweh, which is the most sacred name for God, also known as Jehovah, but that's not as accurate. Yahweh, the Almighty, is referring to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because the word Elohim in Hebrew is the word Almighty's, which is the word for God. In most of the English Bible, it's Elohim in the original. And the word for Lord is usually Yahweh. Referring to who I've described. So I am here to emphasize that I will seek to speak as the oracles of God. And there's another verse that says, if any, it says, worship God for the testimony of God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When we worship God in spirit and in truth out of a pure heart, in great reverence and humility, we are filled with his spirit in an overflow beyond ourselves, which can result in creative utterances coming forth, especially when we're assembling. I was in a congregation the other Sunday, finally found one where they allow people to move in the gifts of the spirit, hard to find these days. And I didn't know what I was going to sing, but they were encouraging people to just move in the gifts of the Spirit. So I sensed the Spirit rising in me to sing a song, but I didn't know what song I was going to sing. I started out saying, I sing to you a love song, Lord. And then I just went on and it became a beautiful song. It was amazing. It amazed me. Because God will enable the gifts when we do that out of a pure motive to love one another, to edify one another. So, what I do to facilitate speaking as the oracles of God is I cast lots to get the possibility of any chapter in the Bible using two independent random applications on the internet. I pray very reverently over them, and carefully over them, and then I cast the lot before God to receive the possibility of any chapter. And I do that to get two chapters with two various applications that they might bear witness with each other as to me discovering the common theme and message in both. And then what I do, as I'm going to do now, is speak on it. Although I'm only doing one message a week, so I will touch on the ones that God leads me to touch on now without preparation. But time and time again, I discover, way beyond coincidence, a common theme. And this is to facilitate speaking as the oracles of God. It's greatly lacking in the body of Christ. And God is calling the church to come into the greatest reformation, in fact, the ultimate consummate reformation, speaking of the church in general. And that means that when we gather together in local assemblies, we do not limit the fullness of the headship of Christ from inhabiting that local assembly. But that's what's happening to all the churches these days. God is calling the church to wake up out of its sleep and become everything that he's called them to be. And that also is true, of course, of you as an individual. Wake up out of your sleep. God is shaking all things that are shakable 
that what's unshakable might remain in these last days, and the birth pangs and the shakings are getting greater and greater and greater. So, I want to share with you what I received and also to give the song that I received by the casting of Lot today. And so, we will do that and I will share from what I received. What God by His Spirit is saying to the churches in this particular time. I'm going to just tell you this before I start this. When you don't limit God, you're, you're going to not have pre-service prayer meetings. You're going to make your church service a prayer meeting. It is going to become his house of prayer again. You're going to be more conscious of Christ in your midst. Oh yeah, people are all talking and having coffee before the church service, and then they walk in and start their singing. That's the typical thing that happens. Well, you can still have your coffee and talk, but once the service starts, started as a prayer meeting with great reverence and awe, maybe it goes a half an hour or an hour. Individually praying at first with reverence and awe. Maybe after 10 minutes, one prays out and another prays out and people stand in agreement out of seeking to be in one spirit and one mind before God. And then out of that, there's a facilitation of the gifts of the Spirit where one can sing out a song if they're moved that way. Another can give a word of exhortation, another a prophetic word, another a word of knowledge, or a testimony, or give a prayer. And then after that, as happened, and many people have shared without having to use, ask permission to use the mic, you don't want to limit God that way, then the leadership speaks, having discovered what the mind of the Spirit is saying through each member of the body. And believe me, this person will share here, and that person will share there, not knowing what each other is going to share, and sure enough, it dovetails. And I had that happen in a particular church I went to years ago in North Vancouver. It happened many times. And I hope there's still that way, but I haven't been there for a while. I know not what is going on there right now. What I'm wanting to do now is share the worship song, and I will say this, that most of the modern worship songs today are shallow, with shallow words. There are some good ones, of course, but there is not the creativity, and part of the reason for that is because people have not been taught to be creative in the meetings and to stir up the gifts of the Spirit. We have limited the headship of Christ from moving through the corporate body. And this is what will break the darkness over your city. Look, it happened in the Welsh Revival. Similar, except man got in the way and it became a hierarchy. God is looking for a living organism in these last days where the leadership is in deep sensitivity to the headship of Christ and allowing the body to flow in the gifts of the Spirit as it was in the early church. And as it often is in the underground church in such places as China and other places of the world where there's severe persecution. So I want to share with you today what I received. And first, I have a wonderful song. I, I think this is one of the ones I really like a lot, so I'm sure you will enjoy it too. It's a worship song with meaning and depth in the words. May it touch your heart and draw you close to God.
So now we're going to go forth with that song. I will minimize myself in a moment. the power of death. The 
world offers temporal fleeting pleasures, but those temporal fleeting pleasures are a delusion. They bring death when you are controlled, manipulated by the baits of this world. Just going to check something here, make sure it's up. Yep. So, I want to go to the um, passages I received this week. I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't remember everything I received this week, but I have brief notes. So, I'm just going to trust the Holy Spirit to speak to the body of Christ what he is wanting to say at this particular day and time, which is Saturday, in the evening at 921 of November the 25th, 2023. So first of all, I received John 13 and Zephaniah 2 by the casting of Lot before God. And these two chapters have the common theme of having humility before God and the severity of God's judgment on those that are proud, such as fell on Judas and will fall on those nations who are proud in the last days. And Zephaniah, particularly the Zephaniah 3, is prophetic, very prophetic about the last days. But so is it in Zephaniah 2 in some measure. But first of all, I have highlighted in green the things that are common in these two chapters. So Jesus answered and said unto him, and this is, um, Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part in me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not to save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. Now, of course, for you to go to someone and wash their feet is an act of humility on your part. And since Christ is this powerful, obviously they believed he was the Messiah, and he was, and he is, to them, that was really exposing their pride. Oh, that's not right. It's pride in reverse. So, God is calling us as his people to be those that are willing to humble ourselves before others. But when you humble yourself before some people, I don't like that because it's going to break a hard shell in their heart. I will never forget a lady in a church service that told me how her husband was not walking close with God and she was so burdened about it and God kept challenging her to wash his feet with a towel. And she kept ignoring the prompting voice of the Spirit of God. But she finally gave in and came to him to wash his feet. And he says, no, no, don't you do that. No, no. 
Well, she washed his feet and he broke down in tears. And they were reconciled and brought into a close love relationship with each other again. And that man came into a close relationship with the Lord as well. And so these are the things that God is teaching us. The ways of humility. Christ showed us the example of humility. And he calls us to be those that even when a person offends us and they're more in the wrong than us, that we can come and through love share our faults in order to win them and tell them the things we appreciate in them that are good. That doesn't mean that if they offend us that we shouldn't reprove them. We should. Because the Word of God does say, if your brother offends, you rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So there's a balance here. But in that balance, there is also love. It is in meekness that we restore one another. I have had people, not often, but I remember one event, happened about maybe six months ago or five months ago, where this brother I knew, I thought he was always a good friend. He comes up and he, I can't go into it. But he started saying, oh, you're so self-righteous and all this. And I was shocked. It really hurt me. I should have reproved him. But since it was getting too intense and he was in a cocky, proud spirit instead of a spirit of meekness, and because he was making a scene, because he was putting his face right up to me like this, I said, put your face back. I can't see you. And I mean, I could have got angry and punched him or something. But what I did is I said, well, if, you're, if you believe that that's the case, why don't you pray for me right now? Pray for me that God will take that away in my life. And that diffused that situation. But I failed to reprove him, and I found a very difficult time after that, um, you know, with this particular brother, uh, getting over it because I failed to reprove him because he was too far away and I didn't want to reprove him in front of his wife. So, anyhow, we go on here. And we read, Know ye what I have done to you. You call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for as I am, for so I am. I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet. Ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. And neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Anyhow. <clears throat> and then we have Zephaniah. And in Zephaniah we read this. This shall they have for their pride. Because they have reproached and magnified themselves against the people of the Lord of hosts, the Lord will be terrible. <coughs> terrible unto them. For he will famish all the gods of the earth, and men shall worship him, every one from his place, even unto the isles of the heathen. 
But we see the emphasis on humility there. It goes on and describes the destruction of a city that was proud and dwelt carelessly. And in her heart she said, I am and there is none beside me. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down in, etc. Okay. <clears throat> Genesis 10 is describing the beginning of the first wicked world system. And Micah 2 describes the root of this evil and also the commands for God's people to come out of it. And so we have that description here of Nimrod, and we know that that was a very wicked world system. There is a website called Red Moon Rising that goes into this in great depth. I don't know after all these years if it's still up there, but it has a lot of archaeology in it showing this civilization, how wicked it was, and showing the, the interpretation of the words from the tablets into English. And so you can check that out. But Nimrod was 15 feet tall, and according to the historian Josephus, he quotes Nimrod as saying, I will take vengeance on God because of the flood. Well, Nimrod was the one that was ruling at that time as king. And he, he's kind of like a foretype of the Antichrist, very gifted and so on, but way bigger than all the other people. Possibly it was, he was the beast. And some people believe that he is the one that will be raised from the dead. And there's stuff, evidence on the fact that they did find his tomb during the Iraq war years ago. Uh, and I think his tomb was taken to, they mentioned something about the Dutch government, but I haven't followed it. I'm just giving you some side notes of interest. So here God is calling his people out of the world system, and he says, Arise ye and depart, for this is not your rest. Because it is polluted, it shall destroy you, even with a sore destruction. If a man walking in the spirit and in falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee, of wine and a strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of this people. I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel, and that will happen in the last days. I cannot go on with this one too long for time because there's so much uh, of what I received throughout the week. When I cast lots on November the 22nd, I got 2 Kings 1 and 1 Corinthians 14, and I wasn't seeing the theme, so I did a bit more, and I got number 16. And 2 Kings 1 and number 16, fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours those in rebellion against God. Those, those things happen in both those chapters. And 2 Kings 1, it is Elijah that is reproving an idolatrous king of Israel who is sick and who wants in his sickness 
to be healed, but he goes to the idolatrous nations to seek healing instead of to the God of Israel. And Elijah says, because you've done that, you will surely die and you will not be healed. And so he sends out soldiers to take him prisoner. And Elijah's sitting on a hill and 50 soldiers come. And he says to them, if I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and devour you and your 50. And immediately fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So the king sent out another 50 and the same thing happened. And the third time, a captain with 50 came. He cried unto Elijah for mercy. And uh, then God told Elijah to go down with him to the king. And he again affirmed to the king, you have sinned. And because you have sinned, you will not recover. But maybe he did repent because he would have realized how real God is after what happened to those soldiers. And so that, again, is a picture of what God can do to nations that defy him as they are right now. There are nations that are what you call goat nations. They're proud. They have belief systems that are not based in truth and reality. They're continually lying. They love death rather than life. They're always seeking to do terrible things to people because there's a spirit of pride in them that was the same spirit of pride that was in Cain that caused Cain to slay his brother Abel. And that spirit represents false religious systems that think they can just bring some performance before God and somehow God will be pleased with that as Cain did. But that's out of a wrong perception of God. They're not looking at the severity of God's holiness that judges sin as good. They're rather perceiving God as some dictator that requires appeasement instead of seeing that God in his judgment is good. They do not want to accept the judgment of God so they can never call unto God for mercy because they justify themselves. They refuse to acknowledge the holiness of God that reveals they are undone apart from the mercy of God. You cannot repent and receive the mercy of God if you do not first have a right perception of God and his holiness that causes you to reciprocate with great awe and reverence who God is in his holiness. <coughs> you can pray for me. I'll get over this cold soon. <coughs> November the 24th, I received 1 Chronicles 4 and Esther 6. And this is an amazing passage too. These two chapters really fit together amazingly, like all these other ones have. A person... <coughs> a person that is honorable is a person that has learned to abide in the place of humility out of the genuine fear of God. We are to seek and boldly ask out of desperation and humility for God's blessings in our life here on earth. Both of these chapters are about 
honor. And um, basically, I have the word honor here. It's the Hebrew word kabod. In the symbolic letters, you have a hand that is receptive. And then the next one is the diagram of a tent, which is habitation. You're receiving a place of comfort or habitation. And then the last one is the door entrance to a tent, and you're entering in. That's the original symbolic letters. A receiving of habitation, and then an entering in of greater habitation. So, kabod is the word for honor. It means heavy. It means more than that. It has various meanings according to the different roots. But it's basically the word. The word honor here is the receptive hand, the tent, which is habitation, then the tent peg, which is putting together, and then entrance into the tent. So it's habitation, then even a greater entrance into habitation, which speaks of something that is not just normal, but very great in its habitation, which is the presence of God. Nothing is greater than that. And so I have here what I received. I received this. First Chronicles 4, 9 to 10. And Jabez was more honorable than his brethren, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bear him with sorrow. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that thou wouldst bless me indeed, and enlarge my coast, and that thy hand might be with me, and that thou wouldst keep me from evil, that it may not grieve me. And God granted him that which he requested. So Jabez is honorable because he is a man that knows the place of great reverence. <laughs> Before God, I'm sorry about this cold I have. He is more honorable. Because when you have the genuine fear of God, which is rightly receiving who God is first in, his, in the integrity of his love, which is his holiness, and then out of that receiving the greatness of his mercy, which also includes his love, when you do that, there is great awe and there is great reverence, and it is it involves the deep turning of the heart that breaks hardness in the heart, causing a sensitivity to the presence of God a sensitivity to other people so that you treat them with respect and so you do become an honorable person when you have those qualities instead of being insensitive like a bull in a china shop. We all need to grow in this area. And if we truly call, and remember it's a deep turning in the heart, he called on the God of Israel. That's not just some glib prayer. He is desperate. He's saying, oh God, would you bless me? And he prays the prayer that I just read. God is calling us as a people. First of all, repent of any sin that can be ground for a curse, because as it says in Proverbs, the curse causeless shall not come. 
And once we know there's a true repentance in our hearts, we can pray a prayer like this, and God will bring blessing in our lives because we don't have an impure motive. To consume it on our own lust, we have a pure motive of love, of love to God that causes us to love others and to bless them. And as it says, give and it shall be given unto you, pressed down and overflowing, basically. <clears throat> now, the other passage that was with this is Esther 6. And this is also about honor. And it says here in this verse down here, the king, Haman is coming because he wants to hang Esther's uncle, Mordecai. Because Mordecai won't bow down to him because Haman wants people to worship him and give glory to him. And is, because he fears the God of Israel, he refuses to bow down. Just like Daniel, Shadrach, and Abednego wouldn't bow down to worship the image that Nebuchadnezzar made. So Mordecai refuses to give honor to a man that is proud and defies the God of Israel. And he won't bow down to him because he believes in only worshiping God. And so he had made gallows to hang him. I and mean, he was coming before the king to get request to hang, pardon me, to hang Mordecai. He was coming to get request to hang Mordecai. And this is what happened. The king couldn't sleep all night. He was troubled, couldn't sleep. And it says here that he basically wanted to find out if Mordecai was ever honored. What honor and dignity have, it says here, on that night could not the king sleep. And he commanded to bring the book of records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king, and it was found written that Mordecai had told of Begthana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, who sought to lay hand on the king, king Ahaz And The king said, What honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servant that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. And it was at that time that Haman's coming to make a request to hang Mordecai. And so when he comes before the king, Haman, to make this request, before he can speak, the king says the following, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said unto him, what shall be done unto the man whom king, the king delighteth to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, to whom would the king delight to do honor more than to myself. And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delighteth to honor, let the royal apparel be brought which the king useth to wear, and the horse that the king rideth upon, and the crown royal which is set upon his head, and let this apparel and the horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man with all whom the king delighteth to honor. Hold on here. 
and bring him on horseback through the street of the city, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Make haste, and take the apparel of the horse, as thou hast said, and do even so to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. And of course, he goes to his bed after he did all this, and he's the one having to say this and proclaim this. He, he goes with, <laughs> extremely upset and crying back home. So anyhow, so God is saying by his spirit in this hour that he wants his people to be in the place where they do not compromise with the things of this world that would call us to compromise and go along with things that are idolatrous, that are contrary to God. He wants us to pay the price and he has his time to bring the wicked under judgment, as we see happened here. And of course, later on, Mordecai was hung on the very gallows that he, not Mordecai, Haman was hung on the very gallows, gallows that he had made for Mordecai. So, those are what, this is what I received this week by the casting of Lot. And I can't preach too well when I have a cold like this, so um, <clears throat> I'm kind of just talking. <laughs> I do want to share that I have another book titled God, Headship, and Body Invasion, which you can get on Amazon. And, and also there's a Kindle book. It's about 250 some odd pages. And everything that should be in a local assembly to not limit the fullness of the headship of Christ from inhabiting the local assembly in these last days, that there might be the fulfillment of John 17 around the world and the fulfillment of Ephesians 4 around the world, the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God. And of course, in Acts, what is it, 4.12, it says, whom the heavens must receive until the restitution of all things. This is the time for the church to rise up and become everything God has called it to be. Thank you for listening to this message and bearing with my bad cold. God bless you all.